Hey y'all, before we get started, we want to give a quick shout out to a new podcast we've really been enjoying called Vanishing Postcards. Have you ever felt the urge to slow down, exit the highway, and get lost exploring the back roads? Maybe you need a break from the big box strip malls that have been power washed of any local personality. If so, plug your earbuds into Vanishing Postcards, a podcast where you'll join Texas native Evan Stern on an adventurous road trip exploring the dives, traditions, and colorful characters that can only be found hidden away from the interstates. Featuring stories collected over a 1,500-mile journey, Vanishing Postcards is an immersive, touching, and frequently humorous experience, perfect for when you need a breather but don't have the time or luxury of hitting the open road. If you feel like coming along for the ride, Find Vanishing Postcards on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this right now. This isn't a paid advertisement, by the way. We're just really big fans of Evan's work, and if you like this show, we really think you'll like his too. So check it out. Okay, on with the show. And a quick word of warning, just like our last episode, listener discretion is strongly advised. It was mid-July, 1991, and it had been two months since Suzanne Shaviers left her abusive husband, Rick. Two months since she'd run out the door with their three-year-old daughter, Christy, in her arms, confused, crying, scared, like mother, like daughter. Two months of divorce paperwork, single motherhood, sleepless nights, and counting out dimes for TV dinners on the counter at the HEB. Two months of compounding stress over whatever future lay ahead of them and a past that was always hot on their heels. The first time he hit her, she wrote it off as a one-time mistake, but one time quickly became a routine. And as much as it hurt to admit, that routine was a familiar one. Rick beat her just like her first husband did, like her father did. You didn't have to be a therapist to spot the pattern. But Rick was different from the other men. His violence didn't always stop when she hit the floor. Sometimes he came after Christy too, stripped off her clothes and beat her with a belt till her tiny body was redder than the rage surging through his veins. Rick denied it all in court, of course. They all do. He'd never see their daughter again. She'd make goddamn sure of that. But it wasn't that simple, not like people seem to think. They always talked about freedom and escape, but those weren't the right words for it. No matter how far away they got, no matter how many years went by, no matter if he dropped dead at that very moment, he'd never truly leave them. It was another routine that was all too familiar. Suzanne couldn't remember a time in her life when she wasn't haunted by the monsters of her past. Or maybe haunted wasn't the right word for it. People who hadn't been there themselves, who didn't know that kind of trauma firsthand, they couldn't understand. There was no freedom or escape from demons, and she would know. There were already 39 years worth of them gathering at the gates of her sanity, pressing their weight against the bars and salivating at every creak and groan of the metal's give. No, haunted wasn't the right word for it. Suzanne Shaviers was possessed. She'd always known there was something wrong. She could feel its acrid breath on the back of her neck, but could never see its face, no matter how hard she strained her eyes in the dark. That is, until her therapist, we'll call her Amber, recommended a new treatment that was showing incredible results in her other patients. She called it recovered memory therapy, and it was an instant breakthrough. Under hypnosis, it all came flooding back, the sensations, emotions, pain, the taste of blood in her teeth. Memories like lucid nightmares of her father's drunken rage, of what he'd done to her, physically, mentally, sexually, over and over, until she was finally old enough to run. She'd been repressing it all, hiding it away somewhere deep down, contained and compartmentalized, where it could only nip at her subconscious from the shadows. The forgetting dulled the pain, 
out of sight, out of mind's eye. But if it stayed there, locked away in the dark, her wounds could never fully heal. It was the therapist who planted the idea in my mind, Suzanne would later say. I had no idea. At first, she wasn't sure whether she should thank Amber or punch her teeth in, but the only way to banish the demons was to face them head on. Sunlight, as they say, is the best exorcist. Healing was a process, though. These things take time. She knew the routine, but Rick was different than the other men. And this time, she wouldn't be the only one in need of healing. Ever since the separation, Christy was acting out. Well, maybe that wasn't the right word for it. Is there a clinical term for when a toddler starts cussing like a VFW bartender and crawling around naked on all fours, eating out of a dog bowl and shitting on the floor every time someone came to visit? It was so extreme, so obscene, Suzanne was at a loss to explain it. It just came out of nowhere, and it scared her. And that wasn't even the worst of it. Christy started referring to Rick as bad daddy, and maybe it was just a little girl trying to mimic her mom's frustration. Maybe it was nothing. But what if it wasn't nothing? and the dark breath on the back of her neck became a whisper. Like mother, like daughter. Suzanne always brought Christy along to her therapy sessions, just one of the many quirks of single motherhood she was figuring out as she went along. But this time she asked Amber to involve them both. She was hoping for the best case diagnosis, one that only applied to her. Projection or delusion caused by stress-frayed nerves, maybe. But the look on Amber's face betrayed the truth before her words could make it real. The possibility of sexual abuse was extremely strong, she said, and Suzanne needed to take Christy for an examination as soon as possible. Tonight, if she could. It was something Suzanne had always wished, however fancifully, that Christy would never have to go through at any age. But you didn't have to be a therapist to know the statistics. Like mother, like all women. But Jesus Christ, the girl was barely old enough to know her ABCs. They drove straight from therapy to the emergency room, where the doctor, thank God, thank God, found no signs of abuse. But that faceless whisper of a doubt, from the deep down shadows where wounds never heal, was still there. Always there. What if the doctor's wrong, missing something, softening the blow? What if he's lying? Thoughts, like tinnitus, ricochet between her ears, like the creaks and groans of a gate about to give. But life goes on, whether you have time to process its traumas or not. And it's not like a single mother could spare the PTO for the luxury of self-care. As an interior designer, she was able to work from home most days, but now that she was the sole breadwinner of the family, she had no choice but to enroll Christy in daycare, just a couple of times a week, not every day, but still. The day after Christy's first sexual abuse exam was also her first at daycare, and Suzanne hated that more than anything in the world. But it was going to be fine, everything was going to be okay. After all, she'd heard nothing but good things about Franz. Franz Daycare Center was out in Oak Hill, at the southern edge of Austin, where the city gradually faded into hills and cedar trees, rural homes and trailer parks, dotted here and there by the gravestones of local families and long-forgotten pioneers. The quaint little cottage really was an impressive place as far as daycares went. It had a swimming pool, a playground, a habitat for bunnies and doves, and even a stable for a pony named Dancer. It also doubled as the happy home of the daycare's owners, Dan and Fran Keller. She was 42, he was 50. They'd met and married in the same year, 1987, and Dan quit his job two years later to help get the daycare off the ground. Now, two years after that, things were going pretty well. As Gary Cartwright of Texas Monthly put it, quote, Fran worked with children all her adult life. Children sensed that she couldn't be intimidated or manipulated, that she was the clear and undisputed boss. The word normally used to describe her, even by friends, was bitch. She was a woman of strong opinions. 
based on the context, her reputation for prickly bitchiness probably would be more accurately described as being a woman who happens to be assertive at her job, but it was a different time, and yes, that'll come up again later. But Fran loved her job, and by all accounts was well liked and respected by her neighbors and customers alike. She had a genuine soft spot for the kids, and always kept a supply of thrift shop clothes on hand just in case anyone pooped their pants while they were there. Dan, on the other hand, was a goofy, easygoing dad with a capital D. He took every opportunity to flex his creativity and handiness, building things, keeping up the grounds, and even handcrafting toys and costumes for the children. Before the daycare, Dan did road work for the county and developed a friendship with the sheriff's deputies that he worked with every day, sometimes joining them for happy hour at the bar when their shifts were done. Deputy Constable Janice White described Dan as part of the family and even asked Fran to be the matron of honor at her wedding. Unfortunately, that friendship and that marriage would soon turn White's entire life upside down. Fran's was a small operation with maybe 15 kids on a busy day. But unlike her competitors, she accepted children with emotional and behavioral problems, including abuse survivors, which at the time was rare, and Suzanne was grateful for that. Other daycares would have kicked Christy out after the first week, but the Kellers welcomed her with open arms and near boundless patience. Still, Fran sensed there was something off about the girl. Plenty of the kids had issues, but Christy Shavir's was different. From the moment she walked in the door, she acted out at any chance she got or maybe that wasn't the right word for it. The girl lied compulsively and seemed preternaturally adept at manipulating the other kids. And whenever she got caught, she blamed them for what she'd done. Fran did her best to accommodate her where she could, and Christy was, fortunately, an infrequent visitor. But still, Fran had a bad feeling about this. Suzanne just didn't know what to do. She liked Amber, she really did, and she could never repay her for recovering the memories of her past trauma. But Amber's advice to set no limits for Christy was clearly the wrong approach, so she started shopping around for a new therapist, preferably one who had a similar methodology. She found exactly that in Dr. Donna David, an avid practitioner of recovered memory therapy and a staunch believer in the scourge of satanic ritual abuse. In their first session, David noted that Christy, quote, seems to be struggling for control and testing her mother's limits continually, so she recommended setting more limits on her behavior, not fewer. But after a few weeks, it was clear that even the new approach wasn't working. In fact, Christy was only getting worse. She started physically attacking her mother, pulling her hair, biting, scratching, breaking things around the house. She would have stabbed their dog to death with a barbecue fork if Suzanne hadn't been there to snatch it out of her tiny hands before she could draw blood. It was frightening, and that faceless whisper hit her neck again like a gale force wind. What if you hadn't been there? What if she tries it again? What if it's not an animal next time? Sooner or later, a line was going to get crossed. Suzanne could feel it in her bones, but she didn't want to imagine what that might mean. Christy attended Fran's daycare for the 13th and final time on August 15, 1991. Suzanne picked her up that afternoon on the way to Dr. David's office, where they planned to discuss her daughter's newest unsettling pastime, the ice cream game. Or at least, that's what Christy called it when her mother demanded to know why she was self-harming her private parts with toys and other objects. As they drove away from Fran's, Christy looked at her mother and said, I don't want to go there anymore. Oh no, why not, sweetie? because they hurt me. Suzanne slammed on the brakes, and the screech and groan of Sanity's gates ripped her mind from ear to ear. Why? How? Tell me. Dan Keller pulled down her pants, she said, 
and spanked her with a belt. Just like daddy. Creak, groan, snap. By the time they pulled up to Dr. David's office, Suzanne was, quote, shaking all over. When they sat down with the therapist, Christy told her that Dan had, quote, pooped and peed on her head. David pressed for more details, but the girl suddenly denied that any of it actually happened. But the doctor wasn't buying it. That was exactly what a victim of abuse would say. Like Dr. Roland Summit taught, denial is the best evidence. Taking a cue from the McMartin Preschool Trial's expert witness, Key McFarlane, David handed Christie an anatomically correct doll and a ballpoint pen. Can you show me on the doll where Danny hurt you? To her mother's horror, Christie grasped the pen in her fist and rammed it violently into the doll's crotch. Dr. David told her that if Suzanne didn't take Christie for another examination immediately, she'd be legally obligated to report this to CPS. But Suzanne hesitated for just a few hours. Maybe she didn't want to make it real. But when Christie told her that it hurt to pee, they were speeding off to the ER in minutes. The clinician on duty, Dr. Michael Mao, regretfully informed her that he found two small tears in the girl's hymen, which appeared to have been inflicted within the last 24 hours. Suzanne was devastated, terrified, enraged, and in a way, vindicated. Because this explained everything. Sure, Christie's behavioral issues had been ongoing for several months, and yeah, there was the divorce, and yeah, there was the ice cream game, which could have been a very plausible explanation for the wounds, but this was why. This was the reason, the explanation that had eluded her for so long and kept her awake every night. This was more than just distress or trauma. This was molestation. That's a, it's a callback from, from part one. Dude, it's been six months. I don't even remember part one. Yeah. Anyway. It was everything she feared, but maybe, subconsciously, in the deep dark shadows of her mind, hoped for. Because it wasn't her fault. All this time it had been external forces, things beyond her control, and the Kellers were going to pay for what they'd done. She'd make goddamn sure of that. She almost didn't pick up the phone when it rang, but she was glad she did. It was her friend Carol Stalin inviting her out to an AA meeting. Booze was the least of Suzanne's problems, but she was grateful for the distraction and a friend. The two had a lot in common. They both suffered from severe allergies and both were coping with troubled marriages, though Carol and her husband Earl were still trying to work it out. And Carol, too, had suffered abuse at the hands of her alcoholic father, the memories of which were recovered through hypnosis therapy. She'd always known there was something wrong, but the revelation came to her in the middle of an AA meeting when another member described her own experience with recovered memory. Suddenly, my body started shaking all over, Carol said, and I started crying. I went into an altered state, like my body was remembering something. And she quickly found a therapist who agreed. Carol and Earl were lawyers by trade who'd moved from Ohio to Austin 12 years earlier in search of a more liberal, new age friendly culture, hoping to beat their mutual alcoholism and eating disorders and, God willing, mend their fractured marriage. But more importantly, Ohio had an eight-year waiting period for adoption, whereas Texas had practically no laws at all. So here they were. They filed to adopt a four-month-old boy from India, and the moment they first held him in their arms, it felt like the worst was over and the next chapter of their lives could finally begin. We don't know the kid's name, and there's a good reason for that, which we'll get to later. We'll call him Johnny. But Austin, an island of weird adrift in a sea of bitterly kept tradition, didn't turn out to be the cure-all they'd been praying for. Carol gave up her law practice, hoping it would calm her mind, but it only made her feel more directionless. By that point, Earl's liver could no longer hide the open wounds of open bottles. 
And then there was Johnny, who was already in therapy at the age of two to cope with the trauma of losing his nanny after her unexpected resignation. He was almost four now, and his emotional issues seemed to be in parallel decline with the family's finances. Suzanne showed up to the AA meeting that night, racked with guilt and dreading confession. Carol had asked her a month ago if she knew of any good daycares in town, and Suzanne had regrettably told her, I've heard good things about Franz. If anything happened to Johnny, she just, she wouldn't, she had to tell her what happened to Christy and what they'd done to her. And when she did, Carol went into what she called automatic denial. Thank God it wasn't my son. But whatever relief she might have felt in the moment quickly crumbled into fear. So Suzanne offered her friend one more recommendation. I've been seeing this really great therapist, Dr. Donna David. Johnny's first session with David was August 29th, 1991, and she had trouble getting him to open up. She advised Carol to keep pressing him with questions about the Kellers until he, quote, gave her the truth because these people customarily threaten and warn their victims against telling secrets. For the record, David later denied saying any of that, but Carol followed those instructions all the same, and they didn't work. Even with her relentless interrogation, Johnny refused to divulge any of his so-called secrets to his mother. Carol even tried opening up to him about her own experiences with abuse, but he still just didn't have anything to say. And Dr. David, of course, took his silence and denials for coded confessions. She told Carol to ratchet up the pressure even more. It was the only way they were going to force the truth out of him, even if that meant guilt tripping, rewarding him when he spoke, or even telling him that he was letting other kids get hurt if he kept his mouth shut. But still, Johnny just didn't have anything to say. And not once did Carol or Dr. David ever entertain the possibility that maybe there just weren't any secrets to tell. After a few more sessions with David, Johnny started having frequent nightmares, wetting the bed and pooping in the bathtub, seemingly on purpose. And the more they pushed him, the more outrageous his behavior got. He started throwing wild tantrums, breaking things, cursing, grabbing strangers' crotches, just like Christy. One day in September, while Carol was washing his hair in the bathtub, Johnny suddenly looked up at her and said, I'm gonna cut your head off. Did Danny tell you he would cut your head off if you told secrets? He nodded because of course he did, and she believed him. What other explanation could there be? From that day on, anytime he said or did anything out of line, Carol would ask him the same question, did Dan and Fran teach you that? And every time, he would give her the same answer. Uh-huh. It became a familiar routine. She kept giving him a way out of trouble, and he kept nodding. Uh-huh. I mean, what kid wouldn't? But the more he acted out, the more convinced she became, and the more convinced she became, the more he acted out. One night in early October, completely out of the blue, Johnny punched their pet cat in the head. Did Dan and Fran teach you that? Uh-huh. He replied, and then stuck his finger in the cat's rectum, wrapped his other hand around its throat, and squeezed. If she hadn't been there, if the words caught in her throat choked her before they tumbled down to the pit of her stomach and hit like an atom bomb, sharp, bright, and burning its shadow forever into the walls of her mind, there was no way back from this and there was nothing beyond. Her world had ended, her life was over, and yet she was still here, left to wither away in the fallout. In that moment, a wave of clarity swept over her entire being. She'd never been more certain of anything in all her life. The Kellers worshipped the devil. And God help her, they'd taken Johnny by the left hand and opened a door to evil in his innocent young soul. He'd been brainwashed, or, or maybe that wasn't the right word for it. 
A year would go by before she could finally bring herself to speak that word aloud in an interview. Johnny, her only son, had been possessed by the devil himself. The next morning, she called a friend who'd been the victim of a satanic cult herself, or at least her therapist sure thought so, and she was more than happy to pass along Carol's info to this really amazing group out in California who'd know exactly what to do. They're called Believe the Children, she said. By the end of the week, a packet arrived in the mail, including a checklist of warning signs for satanic ritual abuse. It was disturbing, ghastly stuff, and it was everything Carol wanted to hear. She was right, and she wasn't alone. A week later, the same packet showed up in Suzanne's mailbox, and within days, the Oak Hill rumor mill had churned out so many allegations against the Kellers, it made the 28 boxes on the checklist look woefully spare. Word spread fast from grocery store aisles to hairdressers to church pews, and when it reached Sean and Sandra Nash, they immediately booked a psychologist appointment for their five-year-old son. We'll call him Andy. Andy hadn't mentioned anything negative about his time at Fran's daycare, and certainly not anything like the heinous allegations everyone was talking about. But his parents needed to be sure, because if he was hiding something from them, God forbid, it wouldn't have been the first time. Andy had a long history of behavioral problems, and this wouldn't be his first encounter with a psychologist. Sandra Nash was a lot like the other mothers, middle class, college educated, and an Austin transplant navigating a new frontier of marital issues and financial concerns. She'd been laid off from her dream job as a landscape architect a few years back, and now she was working 70 hours a week just to make ends meet. Her husband Sean had started his own moving company, but it wasn't going well. Suffice it to say, it had been a rough couple of years, and the last thing they needed was another medical bill. But this was just too important to ignore. Andy had been making real progress up until all this, and, well, given the nature of the allegations, they just had to be sure. Unfortunately, Sandra told the psychologist about the gossip swirling around the Kellers before the session began, including the rumors of Satanism. So, naturally, he busted out the dolls. Andy denied that anything happened to him, but after a few more sessions, he made some progress on the matter. The boy now claimed to know a secret about Danny and Franny that he couldn't tell anyone. He refused to divulge anything more than that, but he didn't have to. When the session was over, the psychologist called in Sandra and Sean to give his professional opinion, to confirm their darkest fears, and to steal away from them any hope they would ever have of leading a normal life. By October 1991, Travis County authorities had permanently shut down Fran's daycare center, and Christy, Johnny, and Andy were spending days at a time at the sheriff's office undergoing intense videotaped interrogations from scores of therapists under contract with the county. It's been a few months since our last episode, so if you're feeling a little deja vu right now, it's because this is almost exactly what happened with the McMartin preschool case out in California, the one that sparked all this madness a decade earlier. Like any good story, horror or otherwise, the daycare scare of the satanic panic ends like it began, with a miserable shit show. The interrogations were long, grueling, coercive, and cruel, and no matter how hard the adults in the room pressed them, the kids just didn't have anything to say. They barely even understood the questions, but the cops and therapists were relentless. And why wouldn't they be? Kids aren't capable of lying and their parents aren't capable of misinterpreting the weird shit the kids say. Everybody knows that, it's human nature 101. Suzanne injected herself into the questioning multiple times, promising Christy a special treat if she'd please just cooperate with the nice policeman. They need to know what happened, because you're the only big girl that can protect the other children, she said on tape. Because what Fran and Danny did was very, very, 
very mean. Even with all the leading questions, confusion, pressure, and straight-up bribery, one of the therapists would later admit in court that she, quote, couldn't even certify that the little girl, Christy, knew the difference between a lie and the truth. The most incriminating thing the investigators were able to get out of the kids was Andy Nash's admission that he'd heard from his parents that Christy and Johnny had been hurt in some way, which, of course, his parents had heard from the other parents. But if the McMartin trial taught them anything, it's that denial was proof that they were on the right track. All they had to do was keep grilling these confused toddlers till they broke, that's all. Everybody knows that. It's a criminology 101. But as the investigation crept into its fourth month without anything substantial to show for it, the parents had grown restless. The DA patiently explained to them that they couldn't make an arrest without a grand jury indictment, and to get one of those, they'd need a rock-solid case. A solid case? What, what more could they possibly need? Ma'am. Did, did they not hear what the children said? They're doing their best, they promised. But these things, they take time to do right How and- How much time? How much longer? Ma'am. How much time? Ma'am, they really couldn't give a definite timeline at this point, but they're working on- I'm sorry, on... but when a Satan cult is violating our city's children, maybe they shouldn't be walking free like nothing happened. Wait a minute, and a maybe, cult? Maybe their safety, the kids' safety, should take priority over the law in this Ma'am, case, okay? Look, maybe. They're, they're really doing their best here. Then do better. Do more. Whatever you have to do. Every day that goes by is, is another urine therapy for these kids. That Stalin boy? Yeah, I heard they've got him in a mental hospital for what the Kellers did to him. Ma'am. How long? Just tell me how long. How many more children? Ma'am. Son of a bitch, answer me. That rumor, it turns out, was actually true. Sort of. Johnny Stalin's mental health had suffered such a rapid and severe decline that Carol felt it necessary to check him into full-time psychiatric care. Carol's own mental health was deteriorating too. She'd originally planned to check herself into the hospital alongside her son, but the family couldn't afford for her to take that much time off work. Instead, she settled for outpatient treatment throughout Johnny's five weeks at the ward. She came to visit him every day, and on one such visit, a local cop on duty leaned in close and told her in a hushed tone, Austin is a hotbed for ritual abuse. The whole damn state's been invaded by Satanists. Another month went by, and the DA's office couldn't go an hour without a phone call from the parent posse or some concerned citizen demanding the immediate arrest of Dan and Fran Keller. At this point, they were a flight risk, they said. And if somebody didn't take action, do something, well, nobody should be surprised when the good people of Oak Hill take matters into their own hands. Ma'am, I assure you, we're doing everything we can. Well, it's not enough. We're tired of empty promises. Honestly, honestly, if I didn't know better, okay? Ma'am. If I didn't know better, I'd say this whole thing stinks like a cover-up. Stinks to high heaven? Ma'am. High heaven. Ma'am, trust me, I understand your concern, but... Then prove it. Ma'am, hello? The grand jury indictment came down shortly before Thanksgiving 1991. The Kellers agreed to peaceably turn themselves in on December 3rd, just so they could have a little time with family over the holiday. The police, surprisingly, agreed. And even more surprisingly, the parent posse weren't wrong about them being a flight risk. Three days after they were supposed to surrender, Austin police found Dan's car abandoned on the side of the road with a loaded 38 stashed under the driver's seat. The Travis County Sheriff issued a statewide APB for the fugitives, and within days it had gone national. On January 15, 1992, more than a month later, Las Vegas police tailed a suspicious vehicle to a hotel and detained the two individuals inside. 
a middle-aged couple with freshly dyed blonde hair, a fake birth certificate in the glove box, and a warrant out for their arrest in the great state of Texas. Three days later, Dan and Fran Keller boarded a plane, bound in cuffs and bound for Austin. They were greeted on the tarmac by throngs of Austin police, sheriff's deputies, Texas rangers, and, of course, local news cameras broadcasting live as the Kellers were led in literal chains to a waiting APD van. They were carted off to the county jail where, without money for bail, they'd remain until their trial 10 months later. Everyone in Austin was watching, including Andy Nash, who turned to his parents and said, Danny and Franny are on Satan's team. When Sandra pressed him to elaborate, he told her that Dan used to cast spells from Satan's Bible all the time. And this one time, he shot two guys with a gun right there in front of him, then pushed the bodies into holes in the woods behind the playground, and then he waved his staff in the air and called for Satan to come. We couldn't find the news footage from that day, but it's not unrealistic to assume that reporters on the scene or back in the studio might have mentioned something about SRA during the broadcast. Or maybe he just overheard his parents talking non-stop about the Believe the Children checklist. Whatever it was, we're willing to bet that Andy didn't just suddenly remember witnessing a ritualistic double murder that he simply forgot to mention at any point over the last six months. And to further evidence our speculation, Johnny Stalin was also watching the news with his mom when he suddenly decided to inform her of Dan and Fran's lifelong allegiance to the Prince of Darkness. He'd never mentioned anything about the devil before, and he never mentioned it to anyone again after that, including the police. But Carol swears up and down he told her all about the Keller's penchant for reading to kids from a big blue book as thick as the yellow pages that was essentially a Kama Sutra for pedophiles. You know, things pre-internet four-year-olds definitely understand and can easily describe. The case had been a lightning rod for media coverage and gossip from the get-go, but now that the devil was officially in the mix, the rumor mill and its endless feedback loop went nuclear. Of course, SRA had always been lurking in the wings, but up until that point, none of the alleged victims had ever mentioned anything about Satanism, or even hinted at occult involvement in their abuse. You have to remember that this was five years into the post-Heraldo world, and the secular facade of the SRA industrial complex was already firmly in place mostly due to prosecutors noticing that their conviction rates were declining when they brought tales of the devil into otherwise straightforward child abuse cases. The easiest way to think about the cultural climate at the time is don't ask, don't tell for devil cult shit. But everyone was thinking it, and word gets around. Before long, damn near every mailbox in Travis County was stuffed with gym teacher checklists and concerned parent manifestos, encouraging readers to do their own research and pressure their kids into divulging any secrets they might be hiding. And if they tell you they don't have any, well, you just push them even harder. Because as it turns out, the more you pressure, intimidate, bribe, and threaten children, the more likely they are to tell you what they think you want to hear. Strange how that works especially if the kid in question happens to be an imaginative and gifted storyteller, like Andy Nash was. And to be clear, we respect the hell out of that. If our parents and the cops asked us constantly every day to tell them elaborate stories about devil cults, we would have gladly obliged. Hell, I'll call my mom right now. Anyway, when Sandra pressed Andy for more, he did not disappoint. The Kellers, he said, weren't acting alone. They were in cahoots with a pair of, quote, bad sheriffs named Pam and Lee, which we assume was totally not just a little boy's reference to the ubiquitous Baywatch star he saw on TV and magazine covers at the time. 
both Pam and Lee, he said, wore brown uniforms that barely concealed their tattoos, a rather distinguishing feature for a cop to have in 1991. When Andy's description of the bad sheriffs was passed on to investigators, they instantly knew who the female in question was, Deputy Constable Janice White. Granted, she didn't fit the description at all, and she retired from the force months ago, and sure, she was well known for bringing coloring books to the kids at the daycare, and her name definitely wasn't Pam, but it had to be her. After all, she was friends with these monsters, or acquaintances at least. What more do you need? Investigators called Andy down to the station and presented him with a photo lineup of female officers, current and former, and asked him to identify the bad sheriff. There weren't all that many women in Austin law enforcement back then, so there were only a handful of photos to choose from, and yet two of them were different photos of Janice White, which is an interesting oversight. This was a woman Andy would have almost certainly recognized from her regular drop-ins at the daycare, if not from Fran's wedding photo, which was prominently displayed on the living room table. Unsurprisingly, Andy pointed to one of the photos of Janice and said, That's her. Next, they laid out 80 photos of male officers, which is notably more than the female lineup, and this time, there weren't any duplicates. Andy suddenly became more unsure of himself, and could only pick out three he considered maybes. All three men were brought in for a polygraph test, which all three easily passed. Again, lie detectors aren't real, but these guys also weren't lying, so whatever. Unwilling to accept that IDing suspects might require more than just the guesswork of a child, they decided to guess for themselves, fingering another former deputy constable, Janice's former partner, Raul Quintero. Raul didn't fit Andy's description either, and his name obviously wasn't Lee, but according to investigators, he somewhat, maybe, sort of, bore a resemblance to the three men that the kid had pointed to in the lineup. But they were sure that Raul was their man because, uh, well, I mean, he was Janice's former partner. When you already bought the supplements, you might as well trust the plan. But the only cop in Travis County who was assigned specifically to child abuse cases, Roger Wade, had some doubts. I was getting frustrated with the whole case, he said. And the longer it went on, the more embellishments were coming from the kids. My greatest fear was that it would turn into a long, drawn-out McMartin case. It was March of 1992, and seven months had passed since the first allegation was leveled, but Travis County officials still hadn't found a single shred of compelling evidence to bolster their claims, and Wade was done. I've gone as far as I want to go, he said, as I can go. He turned the case over to the Austin Police Department and moved on. If there was any truth to this nonsense, it was their problem now. The APD assembled a task force to handle the case, spearheaded by detectives Larry Oliver and Rodney Bryant with an assist from two Texas Rangers. They questioned 40 children who'd attended the daycare at some point in the past two years, and not one of them had a single complaint, much less the corroboration they were hoping for. The ATX parent posse claimed in an interview that the three child accusers had revealed to them, and them alone, a few more of the Keller's dark secrets that hadn't yet been publicly known. Their laundry list of perverse atrocities now included lining up the children like, quote, cuts of meat on a display shelf, for cadres of elite Satanists to drop two grand each, cash, to drug the kid of their choice and get them alone for an hour in the playroom. They said cultists stood watch around the daycare's perimeter using two-way radios to warn if anyone was coming. The tip-off would give them time to quickly flip over all the demonic paintings on the walls. Back to the customer-friendly pictures of Jesus and the alphabet. Apparently all the art was reversible, and apparently none of the investigators noticed that during their extensive searches. I don't know, it's weird that they missed that. 
Austin Police Sergeant Larry Oliver understood, even shared, the parents' suspicions and fears, and he wasn't taking the new allegations lightly. He told Gary Cartwright of Texas Monthly, quote, I learned that the cults send people around the country to teach these evil rituals to childcare workers. And he had that on very good authority, from an occult crimes seminar that he'd attended, hosted by a special ed teacher. Sergeant Oliver's first order of business was arranging for yet another round of interviews with the parents, starting with Sandra Nash. A newer statement would be very important, he said. Under Texas law, the first person a child reveals something to can testify in court. It's an exception to the hearsay rule. He's referring to something in Texas law called excited utterance or outcry hearsay testimony, which in the simplest possible terms, and even then we might be misunderstanding this because we are definitely not lawyers, it meant that Sandra, Suzanne, and Dr. Donna David would be allowed to testify as though they were first-hand witnesses, even though they hadn't personally witnessed anything at all. Sandra told Oliver that her first impression of Fran Keller was that of a warm, loving woman, but around the time the kids came forward, Fran became, quote, very cold-hearted, a totally different and aggressive woman. Which seems like a fairly reasonable reaction to us, given the circumstances, but okay. Sandra admitted she'd been totally ignorant of the satanic cabal and its monstrous agenda until those checklists showed up in the mail. And thank God they did, because otherwise, she never would have done her own research. She still would have believed the mainstream media's lies like all the other sheeple, but not anymore. Now that she'd seen behind the curtain lifted the veil from her eyes, her whole world looked different felt different. Everything, no matter how insignificant it might seem at first glance, was now alive with hidden meaning and cryptic messages that could barely conceal the duplicitous evil within. And she wasn't alone in her dark enlightenment. The other parents saw it too. Now everything held a secret, a clue, a black-veiled meaning and purpose, right there in plain sight but so easily missed if you didn't know what to look for. The devil was everything, everywhere, all the time. He walked among us, and only people like Sandra, the researchers, the free thinkers, the heroes, could see the grim truth for what it was. They were actively retconning their own memories of minor, insignificant incidents. Like all those times their kids came home from Fran's daycare wearing strange clothes that smelled suspiciously like a thrift store. Or when one of the boys came home with a so-called cape that Dan had crafted for him from a Ninja Turtle blanket. It was a gift, he said. They all thought it was great and thoughtful at the time, and the kid loved it, but of course he did. It was designed that way, just like all the toys and trinkets Dan handed out to the kids like Halloween razor blades. The Ninja Turtle cape was a quote, diabolical trigger, meant to subliminally activate one of the child's alter personalities, implanted by the cult to control them and call them home to imprisonment in the devil's earthly lair. Dan even had the audacity to give Johnny a miniature drum set which is an objectively badass gift. But now that she was red-pilled, or I mean seeing clearly, Carol claimed, quote, They gave my son drums so he could call Satan home. In all fairness, that was my mom's reaction to my drumming too. She also alleged that the Kellers had intentionally stuffed horse manure in Johnny's inhaler to induce asthma attacks. Every aspect of these kids' lives, she said, they twisted and perverted. And only a blind, brainwashed sheep would point out the grotesque irony in that statement. Once Sandra had filled him in on the latest revelations the parent posse had uncovered in their research, Sergeant Oliver set down his notebook, took a deep breath, and placed his hand on her shoulder. First, I'll believe you, he said. And second, this scares the hell out of me. 
When it came to researching the satanic cabal, Carol was the posse's foremost expert. She devoured every book she could find on the subjects of SRA, conspiracies, and mind control. But the one she found the most insightful was a 1992 bestseller called The Franklin Cover-Up by then-Republican State Senator of Nebraska, John DeCamp. It's about a real-life, satanic panic-inspired hoax in which a handful of people fabricated SRA claims in a failed attempt to cover up their embezzling scheme. DeCamp argued, however, that the federal grand juries on the case were wrong, or lying, and that the truth was that a highly secretive cabal of satanic pedophile cannibals with ties to the CIA were running a child sex trafficking ring out of a credit union in Omaha, where kidnapped foster children could be flown to East Coast liberal enclaves to be abused, all while gonzo icon and friend of the pod Hunter S. Thompson filmed it. Seriously. Side note, Thompson also originated the idea that adrenochrome was a drug harvested from human sacrifice at the hands of elites. And it was a joke. Anyway, something about the idea of smuggling kids on airplanes really stuck with Carol, even though it didn't really seem relevant to her son's alleged abuse. But, and hear me out, what if it was? It's very much worth noting that the Franklin cover-up had been a recommendation from her friend, Pam Noblet, whose husband just happened to be the most prominent SRA activist in the Lone Star State. Dr. James Randall Randy Noblet got his PhD in clinical psychology at the University of North Texas, right here in Denton, and his doctoral thesis, The Celestial Concomitants of Human Behavior, was a dissertation on the supernatural wonders of astrology. He became an early and vocal crusader against satanic ritual abuse and occult crime in the early 80s, and according to SRA watchdog group Grey Faction, he claimed to be able to quote, disentangle the coercive subliminal sounds of secret demonic code within popular music, as well as decrypt the hidden meanings behind seemingly mundane occurrences. Well golly, that sounds familiar. It sure does, friend. Well, that means it must be true. Coincidentally, or not, in the late 80s, early 90s, Noblet became a disciple of one Dr. Cory Don Hammond, and soon worked his way up to the position of director of the Center for Counseling and Psychological Services in the North Dallas suburb of Richardson. The job lent him an astounding level of credibility that he was able to leverage among law enforcement and his fellow psychologists throughout the state and well beyond it. Noblet probably did more to spread Hammond's green bomb theory to the masses than anyone else in America, and he even penned his own additions to the Elders of Zion expanded universe. According to Dr. Randy, the cultists didn't always require trendy gadgets from Sharper Image to fracture the minds of their innocent victims. In fact, their satanic, but still totally secular and scientific, magic had grown so powerful by this point, they were able to create altars simply by pricking the children with pins and rubbing candy into the wounds. He also used his clout to found his own research group called the Society for the Investigation, Treatment, and Prevention of Ritual and Cult Abuse, the largest and, as far as we know, only such organization in Texas. By the time the allegations against the Kellers came out, the society had chapters in counties all over the state, and Randy Noblet had garnered a sizable cult following among therapists, nowhere more so than in Austin. Keep Austin weird, y'all. Meanwhile, Sandra drove Andy out to three cemeteries in the general vicinity of the shuttered daycare, hoping it would jog his suppressed memories of abuse at the hands of the cult. As they wandered the narrow rows of headstones, he told his mother that, this one time, he watched Danny Keller shove a man into an open grave and pump him full of lead till the gun clicked empty. And then, we assume, told that filthy animal to keep the change. Sandra went straight to the police, but to her frustration and dismay, the cops failed to reflect her own manic enthusiasm back at her. 
To them, Andy's totally not made up story about something that definitely happened warranted little more than a scribble on a pink memo pad and a thanks for your cooperation and y'all have a blessed day now, okay? Okay. Luckily, her comrades in the parent posse weren't as slow on the uptake as Austin's finest. For them, Andy's recovered memory of ritual murder was intoxicating. One part horror, two parts vindication, with a twist of Dunning-Kruger on the rocks, topped, of course, with a generous hit of dopamine. And they desperately wanted more. Hell, I do too. Following Sandra's lead, the other parents also started taking their toddlers on field trips to random graveyards to recover memories of deeply traumatic atrocities. The children did as they were told, of course, and once again, the amateur researchers managed to find heaps of evidence that even the largest police force in the state were too blind, brainwashed, or complicit to find for themselves. These days, we're all too familiar with that mindset of validate our wild suspicions or you'll become our next, but it was a little less in your face back then, and it must have been especially discouraging for Sergeant Oliver. He was already under a ton of pressure from his higher-ups, the media, and the community at large to deliver justice for the supposed victims. Or maybe justice wasn't the right word for it. In truth, his job was to prove his loyalty to the right side of culture, and we imagine it's kinda tough to conduct an objective and fair investigation when everyone is screaming at you constantly to lock him up. He was already deeply sympathetic to their cause from the start, but no amount of conviction was gonna guarantee one in court especially without the evidence to back it up. So Oliver went deep. He took a graveyard field trip of his own to check things out, and he didn't have to be an eagle-eyed G-man to spot a grave or two that had just a little too much loose dirt for the fading dates on their tombstones. Maybe it was nothing, or maybe it was the big break in the case they'd been waiting for. So Oliver and his fellow investigators wasted no time and spared no taxpayer expense in directing the full, and ludicrously excessive, resources of the Austin Police Department into pursuing this bombshell lead. They dispatched a state-of-the-art DPS helicopter equipped with infrared cameras to canvas the cemetery. But something went wrong. They didn't find anything. Somehow all that military-grade tech had completely missed all the damning evidence buried right there in earthen crypts, begging to be uncovered in the name of justice. There must have been a glitch or a miscalibration or something. Enhance! I mean, if this obscenely expensive, infrared chopper can't even expose the sacrificial corpses of the satanic pedo cabal, what's the point of a local police department even having such an extravagant machine? Good question. To quote from The Intercept, Despite its reputation as a progressive bastion in a conservative state, Austin spends nearly 40% of its municipal budget on its police force, a more lopsided allocation of resources toward law enforcement than any other big city in Texas. And we highly recommend checking out the breakdowns of their budget and especially their record of conduct, as reported on in the Texas Tribune and in Texas Monthly. Just Google it, this episode's already really long. Remember what we said about two or three hour long episodes? Yes, Brad. Anyway, they sent the helicopter out again to the same cemetery for due diligence, I guess. It's what the taxpayers would have wanted. Think of the children. And this time they actually found something. The infrared camera captured several quote, hot spots, which according to the user's manual, I guess, could indicate a disturbance of dirt. Band name. And one of these so-called hotspots appeared to precisely line up with, well, the general direction in which one of the kids had pointed, according to his mom, at least. Sergeant Oliver pushed to have the hotspot exhumed, but the judge told him, and sorry, we don't know the legal term for this, to exhume his own head out of his ass. 
The Keller's lawyers in turn hired a former Travis County deputy sheriff turned PI to investigate the grave for himself. And the cemetery's caretaker told him, quote, A lot of those graves are old and sinking with age and erosion. Families go out there periodically and add fresh dirt, but nothing really mysterious about it. Sounds plausible, I guess. To an MSM sheep. Business was still slow at Sean Nash's moving company, which left him with plenty of spare time for research. While the other parents were snooping around graveyards, Sean was driving around the city with a camera, staking out local businesses for signs of satanic activity, photographing random license plates, and even snapping the occasional creep shot of total strangers on the street. On one of his many outings into the deep, dark woods surrounding Fran's daycare, Sean stumbled upon even more undeniable and terrifying proof of the Keller's Satanism, a doll without arms and a handful of small bones. He was so convinced that he'd found the smoking gun for the prosecution that he paid to have the bones shipped to a research lab for analysis. When the results came back as just common animal bones, Sean brushed it off. If anything, the lab proved him right. If they really were animal bones, what were they doing out there just lying around in the woods like that? And of course, if they weren't animal bones, then he was obviously right and scientists can't be trusted. Carol too had lost her faith in the so-called authorities. She was even starting to suspect that the Travis County DA was a double agent working at the behest of the cabal. There was only one way to find out for sure. She had to pay him a little visit at his personal residence. And well, we're not exactly sure what she expected to do once she got there. And she probably didn't know either. She was overworked, stressed, tired of waiting for things to change. She demanded an explanation for what had happened to her family, for how she felt, why her life was crumbling beneath her feet. She didn't know what to do, but she knew she had to do something. Jesus, take the wheel. So she called up the office and demanded the DA's home address. They declined to give it to her, but the deep state never suspects a little thing called the white pages. Lo and behold, his house was right next to the daycare more or less, at least in the general vicinity. Close enough. Besides, the drive out there took her right past a large goat farm. Not exactly uncommon in Central Texas, but Carol was smart enough, special enough, awake enough to connect the dots where no one else could. Goats, she told Cartwright, are used in satanic rituals. And even more damning, the farm wasn't all that far from the substation where the bad sheriffs, Jenny's White and Raul Quintero, used to work. Imagine my shock when I saw that little cozy arrangement, Carol said. But that was nothing compared to what happened next. I backed out of the driveway and continued down the road, and to my shock, the first driveway I came to was his, Mr. District Attorney himself. I literally started shaking all over. As shocking as this might sound, the DA's house was located at the very same address that the phone book said it was. Coincidence? <laughs> Get real. What's especially infuriating about this is that the DA's office was bending over backwards to back up every ludicrous conspiracy theory that the parent posse dumped at their feet, to the point of negligence and, in our opinion, intentional sabotage of any shot the Kellers might have had at getting a fair trial. They didn't even bother to tell the defense attorneys that one of the accuser's families, we're not sure which one, had a history of filing dozens of frivolous lawsuits against people they accused of being satanic ritual abusers, hoping to reap monetary damages in the settlements. Some of those cases had already been dismissed in court long before the Kellers even went to trial. That certainly seems like something the defense should have known about and something the state should have known to disclose. That's just one of the many mishandlings in this case. But the point here is that Carol was wrong. 
The men and women of Travis County law enforcement were true believers, not satanic sympathizers, and they were exhausting everything at their disposal to put the Kellers away for good. Exculpatory evidence, expert opinions, and common sense pointing any which way but guilty was summarily ignored, rejected, or intentionally hidden away. Case in point. Teresa Chambers, a local mother of two kids enrolled at Fran's daycare, had every reason to be just as concerned as the other parents, if the allegations against the Kellers were true anyway. But some of the stuff the rumor mill was churning out was so far out there, she had her doubts. She wanted to see the evidence for herself before she jumped to conclusions, which, by the way, is how actual skepticism in doing your own research is supposed to work. Teresa seems cool. Yeah, I like Teresa. So she called up the DA and asked to see the videotapes of the interviews they'd conducted with the accusers. The DA's office told her, and she stressed that this was a verbatim quote. Just assume that all the children at that daycare were abused. In the church of conspiracism, skepticism is a one-way street with a cop on every corner. It's been a bit of a recurring theme throughout this series, but we want to stress again that innocent until proven guilty is a credo that doesn't actually apply across the board. More often than not, it's something you earn with social status, inherit by birthright or melanin level, or pay for in cash. For the vast majority of working class Americans, bail alone is an insurmountable burden to say nothing of the cost of decent legal representation. The Kellers were no exception to this, and they spent nearly a year locked up in county jail. Innocent people aren't supposed to lose their jobs, businesses, credit rating, time, relationships, or freedom until a jury convicts them of a crime. If the only difference between the presumption of guilt and innocence is cash ransom, then the Kellers, like the vast majority of Americans, were only innocent until they were proven poor. And this seems like as good a time as any to talk about policing. <clears throat> Can we just do like the history of Astral World or something next time? I mean, goddamn. Well, now that you mention it. Nope, we're getting through this. <sighs> Supplements. According to Cohen's research, once a folk devil has been summoned and a moral panic begins to metastasize, there's a predictable pattern of reaction. Every act of deviance or petty crime starts to look like the work of the devil, even if no one would have seen it that way before. Polsters note sudden upswings in favor of increased funding and expanded powers for the police and harsher punishments for the accused, including a frightening rise in approval or indifference to excessive sentences, police brutality, even extrajudicial killings. The pervasive rumors and heightened anxiety, Cohen says, Quote, polarize the images of the good, brave policemen with the evil, cowardly mob. When majority opinion shifts, law enforcement and the justice system shift along with it. During moral panics, courts are more likely to set exorbitantly high bail for alleged offenders who fit the profile of the folk devil, if they offer bail at all. The result, conscious or not, is the punishment of individual crimes as though they were parts of some nefarious whole. The trials also tend to be highly publicized and showy, to set an example or send a message. Cohen refers to such trials as rituals, which we think is especially fitting, given that his research was done years before the satanic panic really took off. Treating these small-time, unrelated incidents as though they were part of a widespread conspiracy is red meat for the for-profit media that gorges itself on ratings and excretes fear, paranoia, and delusions of heroism. The feedback loop eats people alive. 
And it only gets worse when those who consider themselves to be on the right side of culture stop seeing cops and judges as impartial enforcers of the law and more like noble vigilantes protecting the city from a rogues gallery of supervillains. As sociologist William Wesley noted, quote, the symbiotic relationship between adoring crowds and police in situations of unrest often results in an undue escalation of violence. This phenomenon can be seen in any situation where those with the authority to commit violence are met with overwhelming encouragement and goading from onlookers and the culture at large. It's been observed many times at its worst among mafia members and concentration camp guards. It's always easier to pull the trigger when someone's cheering you on. As one Austin detective told Texas Monthly back in 1992, quote, There's a core group of uh, law enforcement officers who feel that they are on a mission from God, that ritual abuse is the ultimate battle of good versus evil. And you can justify damn near anything when it's a means to the end of evil. In July 1992, a representative for the Travis County DA, Sally Whitley, was just as frustrated as everyone else at the snail's pace of the investigation. But she had a hunch that a 30-year-old truck driver named Doug Perry was the missing piece of the puzzle. He was bad sheriff Janice White's ex-husband, regarded by most folks who knew him as not particularly bright, uh, some even referred to him as mentally challenged. We only mention that because taking advantage of someone like Perry would be unconscionable. But if the good guys, the white hats you might say, were gonna bust this whole global devil conspiracy wide open, they'd have to break a few eggs, even if that meant hatching a conspiracy of their own. We only know this because Whitley got a little too cocky about her plan and confided in a deputy constable who later, and far too late, blew the whistle. Quote, she said that if we tell Doug that Janice and Raul had already given statements and ratted on you, he'd probably sign a statement on them. Sally said she thought Doug was dumb enough to fall for it. Whitley would eventually admit, long after the damage was done, to saying all of that, except for the word dumb. For the record, we don't believe her. At Whitley's urging, the Texas Rangers subjected Perry to multiple polygraph tests amid hours of grueling interrogation. Were you aware of what was going on at Fran's daycare? No. That's a lie. You sure about that, son? No, I, I don't know. No, you're not sure, or no, you ain't lying? I don't know. I'm gonna ask you again, one more time. Did you know what was going on at Fran's daycare? No. That's a lie. In a way, Perry was lying about that. He actually knew details about the case well before they were made public, but not because he was involved or because he'd witnessed them, or because they even happened at all. A year earlier, when Suzanne Shaviers leveled the first allegation, Perry was still married to Janice White, and she was still an active deputy constable. She'd simply shown him the case file before it was officially released. Sometimes the only difference between the truth and a lie is how you phrase the question. Just as Whitley prescribed, the Rangers put the screws to Perry, telling him the Kellers had already spilled the beans and implicated him in their unspeakable crimes. The law had him dead to rights, they said. This was his one chance for mercy. Fess up now, tell them everything, or he'd get a one-way ticket to Huntsville. And you know what they do to kitty diddlers in the pen, don't you, son? I was scared, he later said. I didn't know what I was doing. So he lied. One Friday night, he said, Dan and Fran invited him, Janice, and Raul to a, quote, beer and sex party at the daycare, where the Kellers had a boy and a girl, presumably Christy, held captive. Janice approached the children with a baby doll in her hand. I know where you live. And if you tell anyone about this... And ripped the doll's head clean off. 
We'll spare you the rest of the details, given that they're pure fiction, but he essentially told the cops that he and the others abused the kids and documented the whole thing with a Polaroid camera. No such photos ever surfaced, of course, but that wasn't the biggest hole in Perry's story. Over the past year, Christy, Johnny, and Andy, and more often their parents, had spun countless detailed yarns about all the horrible things the Kellers had supposedly done, but none of them resembled anything like the scenario Perry described. In fact, none of them even mentioned Perry at all. It's pretty clear that he was just telling the cops what he thought they wanted to hear so he wouldn't get in trouble, just like the kids were doing. Perry lawyered up the next day and filed a retraction on his fake and forced confession, but the cops charged him anyway. Within days, Janice White and Raul Quintero, the bad sheriffs, were arrested and charged for their roles in a crime that never happened. By the time the trial finally got underway that November, the list of allegations against the Kellers was so long we could barely keep up with them all. Any similarities to the McMartin preschool trial are purely coincidental. According to the South Austin rumor mill, Dan and Fran Keller baptized children in blood, dug up bodies in a graveyard, and forced the kids to carry the bones around, cut out an infant's heart and made them suck the blood out of it, mixed human blood into their Kool-Aid, tortured a rabbit to death and told him it was the Easter Bunny, dressed up as pumpkins and then shot children in the arms and legs, flew them out to military bases in Mexico to be abused by uniformed soldiers, ran an international porno and prostitution ring out of Camp Mabry, the headquarters of the Texas National Guard, murdered some guy with a chainsaw, skinned his body, and stuffed the flayed skin in the kid's socks, kept a flock of doves on the grounds for the sole purpose of breaking their wings in front of the children and then forcing them to bury the carcasses in a castle that doesn't exist, chopped off a kid's arm and replaced it with, quote, Satan's bone, which looked exactly like a normal child's arm, made them brush their teeth with human feces, kidnapped a gorilla from a zoo that doesn't exist and cut off its fingers to drain its blood, commanded a parrot to, quote, peck them in the pee-pee, decapitated an infant, tossed it in a swimming pool full of baby-eating sharks, and made the kids swim in it. I can't remember. Is, is baby-eating a species or a genus? Nobody knows. It's a well-known fact that uh, marine biologists are uh, completely in the pocket of big shark. <laughs> drove the kids to random stores in Austin where they could pimp them out to people dressed as werewolves, sold the werewolves exactly 90 gift wrap video cassettes, then spread the dollar bills out on the floor and forced the kids to roll around in them, buried them alive, and then right before they suffocated, dug them up again and announced, Satan has spared you, forced the kids to smoke cigarettes, and threatened to kill their parents and burn down their houses if they told anyone about it. Johnny even claimed that Dan had brutally murdered Fran's beloved dog, Sissy, by clamping its mouth shut, stabbing its eyes with pins, shooting it full of drugs, and then strangling it to death. Andy took the story even further, claiming Dan dismembered the dead dog with an axe. In reality, Sissy had been hit by a car, and Dan, hoping to spare Fran the heartbreak, buried the dog in secret and told her it ran away. It's just sad, man. And all of this stuff supposedly happened in an open-door daycare center where anyone at all could stop by at any time, and often did, including police, and the Kellers supposedly disposed of all the blood, dirt, and whatever else without missing a single drop of evidence, without leaving behind any financial or flight records, without a single adult witness coming forward, without anyone spotting the throngs of cultists supposedly hanging around the grounds with two-way radios, and with time left over to bathe and dress all the kids in fresh clothes, give them cursed toys and cigarettes, and sufficiently scared them into silence, all before their parents came to pick them up at three in the afternoon. 
As insane as all that sounds, prosecutors Judy Shipway and Brian Case thought their case against the Kellers was, quote, much neater than most of the child abuse cases they'd tried, which kind of says something about the previous decade of satanic panic trials, as does their deliberate choice to avoid any mention of satanic ritual abuse while presenting their case. Instead, their strategy was to focus entirely on Christie, the first accuser, primarily because it was the only allegation that had any physical evidence to back it up. Namely, the dubious scars identified by that ER clinician, Dr. Mao. They didn't even charge him with abusing the other two kids. That's how weak their evidence was. The Keller's court-appointed defense attorneys, Whitworth and Jones, didn't plan to bring SRA into the trial either, because they didn't even know it factored into the case until they subpoenaed Suzanne's therapist, Dr. David, for copies of her notes. We're not sure whether they found out right before the trial or a few days into it, but either way, the satanic werewolf stuff was a last-minute addition to the proceedings. The defense decided to gamble on the injection of SRA into the trial for the same reason the prosecution was trying to avoid it. Both sides assumed that any rational juror would find the true nature of the allegations so ridiculous it would all but guarantee a speedy acquittal, or at least cast a long shadow of doubt over the Keller's guilt. But tragically, both sides would turn out to be very wrong about that. Christy Shaviers, now five years old, was called to the stand on the second day of the trial, November 19, 1992, where she sat on her teenage sister's lap and sucked on a lollipop. She was too shy for a proper swearing-in in front of all the gallery spectators, but once Jane Shipway began the questioning, Christy became kind of a handful. She couldn't sit still and quickly acquired a taste for the attention, acting silly and smacking her lollipop on the microphone. They only got 10 minutes into it before the judge called a half-hour break, hoping it might calm her down. It didn't. Christy was even more playful and rambunctious the second time around, but at least she was answering Shipway's questions this time, albeit not in the way that the prosecution hoped. She claimed she'd never been touched inappropriately by anyone, didn't know anyone named Dan or Fran, and never attended any daycare at all. Frustrated. Shipway repeated the questions again, but gave the girl permission to whisper the answers into her ear this time, which, in our opinion, seems a little sus. All we know is that Christie's whispered answers happened to be the exact opposite of those she'd just given moments before. Did Danny ever do something to you that you didn't like? Yes. Go ahead and tell him. Christie stood up and offered her lollipop to the people around her and started blowing into the mic. Hello, hello. Shipway sighed, knelt down next to her, and again ran through all the questions. Did Danny ever do something to you that you didn't like? No way, Jose. Does no mean no you don't want to talk about it, or no it didn't happen? No, it didn't happen. In lieu of cross-examination, the defense showed the jury videotapes of three interviews Christy had done with the investigators, each answer contradicting the last, when she answered them at all. Needless to say, it was a bad day for the prosecution, and they chalked it up to the kids' fear of the crowd, even though Christy sure seemed to be having a pretty good time on the stand. But according to the parent posse, there was another explanation for why things went off the rails. The little girl they all saw answering questions wasn't the real Christy Shaviers. It was her body, sure, but the words coming out of her mouth were those of an altar, programmed into her brain by the cult to bungle the case and make them all look stupid. Several of the parents told reporters they'd personally seen Dan Keller's brother and another unknown individual flashing, quote, threatening hand signals at the girl during her testimony to trigger the takeover of an evil altar. For her part, Shipway denied having witnessed any such hand signals, but she had heard of those tactics being used before, so, you know, sure, what they said. Did we mention that Dan's brother wasn't even in the courtroom that day? Yeah, well, neither did the media. 
In a situation like that, it seems prudent to call in an expert to clarify things for the jury from the position of an unbiased scientific authority. Instead, they got Dr. Randy Knoblet, who was paid 140 taxpayer dollars per hour to explain the modus operandi of the global cabal of satanic pedophile cannibals who rule us all from the shadows. Satanists often use hand signals to control their victims, he told the court. One or both of the defendants likely ran their hand down their face, signaling to the victim, you saw nothing, you heard nothing, and you will say nothing. He also validated the prosecution's absurd claim that the kids couldn't possibly have gotten any of their stories or ideas from an external source. He then, without a shred of self-awareness, went on to describe in great detail how the Salem witch trials went down in an attempt to illustrate for the jury how this case was completely different. He said aloud, under oath, and in real life, quote, Those were little girls describing fantasy events. Here we have children describing real events. This is no witch hunt. Local news outlets interviewed Noblet afterward, and now that he thought about it, he did remember seeing Dan just subtly make the shape of the letter C with his fingers, which Noblet knew was prison code for saying hello to the boys in C block. And the muckrakers, once again, were all ears. And I am not sorry for the callbacks that nobody will remember because they're just going to keep on coming. When they ran Noblet's clips on the evening news, they juxtaposed his baseless speculation with footage from a completely different day where Dan happened to rub his face. Of course, that kind of deceptive editing is nothing new. It's been around as long as TV news itself, from the race riots of the 1960s to last night's episode of Tucker Carlson, because it works. Sometimes the only difference between reporting the news and addicting your audience to fear and rage is the ratings. Nuance? You can't even give that shit away. Despite his retraction and very legit allegations of coercion, Doug Perry found no sympathetic ears within the Travis County justice system, and it's not like he could afford the legal fees to fight it anyway. Feeling cornered and justifiably scared for his life, Perry felt like he had no option but to take the plea deal that was offered to him by his captors and abusers. They promised they wouldn't use his confession against him at his own trial, the confession they'd intimidated him into fabricating, if he agreed to plead guilty to indecency with a child and read his fake confession aloud, word for word, on the stand and under oath at the Keller's trial. It was a cruel, exploitative, fucked up thing to do, especially to a man they'd intentionally targeted as mentally challenged and then literally framed. But what choice did he have? As Perry struggled through the recitation of words that were never really his own, reporters described him as, quote, extremely emotional, his voice cracking as he held back tears. A broken man breaking down in desperation, all for the crime of being too broke in a broken system. Doug Perry's great reward for complying with the same authorities who put him there was 10 years of strict probation, his name on the National Sex Offender Registry, and the Christ-like mercy of not getting beaten to death in a cage for a crime that never even happened. This, to the lawmen of Travis County, was justice. Only months before his probation was set to expire in 2003, he was busted for failing to upkeep his monthly registration as a sex offender, which, again, he wasn't. It was the first time he'd ever forgotten to do it, and it was the last time he'd ever be a free man. They sentenced him to 10 years in prison for the violation, which turned out to be a life sentence. Doug Perry died in prison, innocent, in 2015. On November 21st, 1992, it was the Keller's turn to take the stand. As she took her hand off the Bible and took her seat, Fran mustered everything she had to compose herself. 
softly but confidently answering every question her attorney asked. No. 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 Well, if you didn't no. do any of those things, no. then why did no. you go to Las Vegas? No. My daughter, my, my oldest, she lives there. She caught eyes with some of the jurors, and all she saw reflected back at her was disgust, fear, and hatred. A child molester. A devil. A lie. They didn't want the truth. They wanted a story. We all do. It's how we're wired. It's who we are. In words short, concise, and sober, Fran explained how they'd been blindsided by the allegations. Their entire world upended. We were scared, humiliated, hurt. They couldn't afford bail. Their only source of income had been shuttered by the state, the rumors, the isolation, the fear. And no matter how well things went at the trial, no matter how weak the evidence might be, the conviction rate in SRA daycare cases was 85%. They knew they were going to prison. And at their age, even the best case scenario was a life sentence by any other name. She'd seen the stories on the news, on Oprah, Geraldo. She'd seen all those child molesters, devil worshippers, these monsters getting the justice that they rightfully deserved. Or at least, she thought they were guilty. The reporters said they were, the police, the judges, the experts, and she believed them. Why shouldn't she? It's their job to tell the truth, and if we can't trust them, who can we trust? But she was innocent. The people on the news all these years, were, were they innocent too? She hadn't been the one who'd lit the pyre around their stake, but God help her, she'd reveled in their anguish while they burned. And because of that cultural crime in which nearly everyone was complicit, her tears and pain were perceived as nothing more than a performance. She was all too aware of that too, so she did everything she could to stay composed. The prosecution seized on her, quote, defiant demeanor and ran with it for all it was worth. One juror later told reporters that he voted to convict solely because of, quote, the woman's demeanor. Fran Keller was a woman who had the cadence and appearance of a serious person in a serious situation, and the prosecution painted it as heartless bitchery. So did the judge and the jury, the spectators, the media, and the TV viewers at home. Sometimes the only difference between justice and a lynching is a simple majority opinion. One of the Las Vegas cops who'd arrested the Kellers back in January testified that Fran had, quote, an attitude, which is why he and the other all-male arresting officers on the scene had no choice but to make her strip down in front of them and stand there naked while they questioned her. Yeah, that actually happened. And we really feel like it's important to mention that this wasn't the distant past. Brad had just celebrated his eighth birthday. Bill Clinton had just been elected president, and I was standing in line at Funsphere in Arlington, Texas, waiting my turn to play Mortal Kombat. People like to say, it was a different time, because that's just what you say when you know you're guilty of something that you got away with. And the only difference between then and now is 20 years and a body camera. When it was Dan's turn to face examination, he completely shut down. Reporters described him as appearing confused and distant, like he didn't know where he was. Shipway asked, So it's all just a coincidence? Yes. What's a coincidence? I don't know. Then why are you up there testifying it's a coincidence if you don't know what it is? I don't know. Needless to say, it wasn't going well. The defense called up dozens of character witnesses, happy customers from the daycare, friends, family, neighbors, even their landlord. And every one of them said they'd never witnessed anything even remotely like the horrors that the Kellers allegedly committed. And maybe, in any other case, any other crime, it would have been a compelling display. But the jurors' eyes reflected back at the condemned no empathy, pity, or mercy. Just boundless, black, nothing at all. 
When denial is guilt and silence is confession, there's nothing left to say. Andy Nash never took the stand, instead testifying from a separate room broadcast to the court via CCTV. Now six years old, he clutched a teddy bear tightly to his chest as he recounted in elaborate detail all the times he'd witnessed the Kellers abuse Christy while he and the other kids were forced to watch horror movies. He said they drugged them to make them forget what they'd seen. It looked like stomachache medicine, but it wasn't, he said. It didn't stop my stomach from hurting even for a minute. It made it feel worse. And he didn't forget. He even interrupted the investigators multiple times to correct them whenever they mentioned Fran's daycare center by name. You mean hate care center, because they hate kids. According to Gary Cartwright, the boy seemed primed and thoroughly prepared, and whether that's true or not, there's no denying that Andy was by far the prosecution's most effective witness. When it was the defense's turn, they played a videotape from Andy's interview two months earlier, in which he told the same investigators a very different story. On the tape, he said Fran's daycare was pretty good and denied that any abuse had taken place, at least not that he'd seen. At one point, he says he can't remember anything that happened there at all. The defense pointed to the inconsistencies as evidence that the kids were being coaxed, coached, and coerced into their testimonies. They even hired an independent therapist to review the tapes and she counted 89 leading questions. In fact, social workers today still use those tapes as educational examples of what not to do in that situation. But this, of course, was a different time. The prosecution simply waved it off. The inconsistencies weren't damaging to their case at all, they said. If anything, they were only more damning evidence of the cult's well-documented track record of threatening victims into silence and using goggles from sharper image to erase their memories. Noblet's expert testimony backed him up on all of that, of course. Prior case precedent backed him up, too. So did Geraldo and Sally Jesse, police departments, schools, churches, Jack Chick. Making the victim look irrational or untrustworthy were telltale signs of cult involvement. Everybody in town knows that. The accused must prove their innocence, and that burden is the devil's alone to bear. Justice will be served. And so it was. On November 26, 1992, after a six-day trial and 14 hours of deliberation, the jury had reached their verdict. Dan and Fran Keller were guilty of child sexual abuse, and Judge Will Flowers sentenced them each to 48 years in prison without the possibility of parole until 2004. He then asked if they had anything to say for themselves. In a barely audible whisper, Dan said, I'm innocent. We're innocent. And Fran simply said, No. And that was it. The bailiffs led the two away from the courtroom and from each other for what would be a very, very long time. For the parents of the alleged victims, the verdict was both closure and a disappointment. I feel that if there was ever a case for life sentences, Carol said, this was it. In December 1993, the parent posse would suffer yet another disappointment when the charges against the bad sheriffs were dropped. The DA declined to pursue the case any further because, quote, the children had stopped talking and important evidence failed to materialize. Hmm, you don't say. In the months that followed, Christy Shaviers and Johnny Stalin came under the care of Karen Hutchins, an Austin-based therapist and the secretary-treasurer of the Travis County chapter of Randy Noblet's Society for Investigation, Treatment, and Prevention of Ritual and Cult Abuse. Jesus, get an acronym. Cartwright caught up with Hutchins for an interview shortly before the trial ended, where she handed him a packet of photocopied documents about Corey Hammond's hoax CIA experiment, Project Monarch. She and her colleagues apparently carried the packets around wherever they went, just in case some skeptic ever asked for proof of their claims. 
which is, you know, just what you do when you're a serious person with well-founded beliefs. They've infiltrated the legal, medical, and law enforcement professions with their agents, she told Cartwright. The male agents tend to end up in the criminal justice system, and the females end up in state hospitals. And as far as she was concerned, dozens, if not hundreds, of Dan and Fran's cultist co-conspirators were still at large, preying upon America's children in Satan's service. And Hutchins would know. She claimed she could identify an SRA victim after only one therapy session. I can feel an energy change, she told him, being an actual professional in the field of mental health. And he wouldn't believe how widespread this kind of thing is, she said. She had diagnosed nearly half of all of her patients with multiple personality disorder caused by satanic ritual abuse. And that's not as surprising as it sounds, given the statistics. In 1991, a nationwide survey was conducted of mental health professionals, and 70% of them reported having never once treated a case of SRA or MPD. In fact, nearly all SRA cases had been diagnosed by a mere 2% of therapists in the entire country, each one individually reporting hundreds of cases. One of them was responsible for as many as 2,000. So yeah, when Karen Hutchins said that she saw this kind of thing all the time, we believe her. It's what she wanted to see. Karen went on to say that the cult had programmed Christy with eight distinct altars and programmed Johnny with as many as 17, including one that was a deadly assassin and another that was a 56-year-old man named Poopsie who had the power to defecate on command. The parents believed what she told them. Having a bowel movement at 9 p.m. when your pattern is every other morning, Carol said, you can't fake that. Well, you can. And I have. But that's not the point. And Hutchins wasn't done yet. She said the Satanists program self-destruct mechanisms into their victims to hide their tracks. Based on her <clears throat> research, Hutchins determined that Christie would commit suicide on her sixth birthday. And she wasn't the only therapist handing out psychic suicide predictions at the time. It was a key component of Corey Hammond's delusional theories. And his secular cult of therapists across America were dutifully following his prescriptions. Andy Nash was assigned a different psychologist than the others, and he too was informed by a so-called doctor that the cult would trigger his suicide when he turned eight. Thankfully, none of the kids fulfilled their therapist's grim prophecies when the time came, and they're all very much alive today, 30 years later. But we can only imagine what that expectation did to their psyches, not to mention that of their parents. It's psychological abuse, without a doubt, without exception, and, it seems, without consequences. Cartwright followed up on those involved with the case a year after the verdict, and Andy Nash was still seeing the same psychologist and still suffering from bouts of confusion, paranoia, and rage. That doesn't sound like progress to us, but at least he was keeping busy with the karate class he was taking so that, quote, When they come and get us, I'll be ready. The SRA conspiracy theory dragged Andy's parents, Sandra and Sean, into a freefall down the rabbit hole. It consumed every ounce of their time and energy, and the resulting legal fees and healthcare costs quickly swallowed up whatever was left of their lives. Their moving business had completely collapsed, their savings was long gone, and they were barely scraping by on Sandra's disability checks. Our children's emotional needs are such that we have no choice, she told Cartwright. We just take it one day at a time. Belief in the conspiracy took everything from them, and now it was all they had left. It's a story we've heard before, and one that we're, unfortunately, bound to hear again. Stanley Cohen, the sociologist we've been referencing a lot in these past two episodes, referred to the Satanic Panic's daycare scare as, quote, one of the purest cases of moral panic, which is saying something, given that he's the guy who literally coined the term. 
there was one more SRA-adjacent case in Texas in 1994 involving a young woman and her three friends being wrongfully convicted of sexually assaulting her seven and nine-year-old nieces, but we really don't have time to go into any depth about it here. We will say, however, that the case of the San Antonio Four, as they were dubbed in the media, parallels the Keller's ordeal almost exactly and involved a lot of the same people, but instead of being targeted as daycare workers, they were targeted as lesbians. If you want to learn more about their story, we highly recommend tracking down a copy of Deborah Esquenazi's documentary, Southwest of Salem. There were a handful of other SRA daycare investigations and trials over the next few years, but none resulted in convictions. Prosecutors no longer wanted to risk their reputations on these cases, and the public had largely lost interest. Dan and Fran Keller of Austin, Texas, would be the last childcare workers ever convicted of satanic ritual abuse crimes. Well, as of this recording, anyway. A decade and a half after William Deere P.I. dragged Dungeons and Dragons into the media spotlight, the satanic panic was over. Sort of. Ending where it began. Sort of. Right here in Texas. But for the Kellers, the long, dark road to exoneration had only just begun. We'll catch up with them again in a bit. For now, we gotta talk aftermath. According to the New York Times, approximately 190 people were charged with SRA-related crimes over the course of the panic. Nearly all of those convictions have since been overturned, but at least one, Frank Fuster, is still in jail. You might remember him from our episode, And I Will Go to Texas, as the case that ultimately positioned Janet Reno to become the U.S. Attorney General presiding over Waco. But a lot of those wrongfully imprisoned people who eventually secured release were never actually exonerated, meaning they're still considered guilty in the eyes of the law, still classified as convicted felons, and some are still registered sex offenders. A 1993 survey conducted by the American Bar Association found that at least a quarter of all active prosecutors at the time had been involved in at least one SRA-related case. And even if the public had lost their appetite for rooting out cultists in the courtroom, their fear of the devil was still as strong as ever. As of 1994, 70% of Americans still believed that satanic ritual abuse was real. And even the small minority who didn't were still forced to grapple with the destruction left in its wake. Towns where high-profile SRA trials were held were deeply impacted by all the unwanted publicity, and the economic reverberations lingered around years after the TV cameras had packed up and gone. Studies found that a majority of those places experienced significant declines in daily commerce and decreased property values across the board. Insurance rates for daycares skyrocketed as much as 1,500%, forcing childcare providers to shut their doors or jack up their rates so high that no working family could possibly afford it and the feedback loop of systemic poverty churns on. The legal fees and other associated costs blew massive holes in state and local budgets. And when you combine that with the diminished revenue and the subsequent gutting of public services, the rates of crime, debt, and eviction soared, like a socioeconomic sinkhole that swallowed towns whole. The panic also made it far more difficult to prosecute real cases of child abuse and human trafficking, as the massive influx of false claims and conspiracy theories muddied the waters of truth and fiction, sucked up the time and resources of anti-trafficking organizations and law enforcement, and caused a backlash effect that Cohen warned about in his research 20 years before. The more the public woke up to the panic's grifters, lunatics, and moral entrepreneurs, the less likely they were to believe the victims of actual abuse, and consequently, the more likely abusers were to escape conviction. And somehow it gets even sadder. Study after study found that the vast majority of adults who reported being victims of SRA at some point in their lives 
had actually been survivors of very real abuse and neglect, just not at the hands of some devil cult. In nearly all cases, the abusers turned out to be members of the victim's own family or some other authority figure in their life. People they knew, people they trusted, people who had power over them. Monsters who wore their masks of human skin so tight, no one ever suspected, and when their victims came forward, no one believed. Not only were they real survivors, but the treatment they were getting for it only made things so much worse. A 1994 study tracked the progress of 30 patients who were receiving treatment from SRA-believing therapists. After just three years of their so-called therapy, 70% of the patients had lost their jobs, 70% were suicidal, 30% were hospitalized for psychiatric issues, half of their marriages ended, a quarter lost custody of their kids, and a quarter attempted some form of self-harm or suicide and 100% of them had been disowned or become estranged from their families. The success rate for SRA therapy reads more like a body count. As we touched on back in part two, the satanic panic never really had a definitive ending. It just faded into the background, gradually disappearing from the news and talk shows as the public's appetite for occult mania waned. Law enforcement's focus shifted Prosecutors stopped pursuing the cases, and what had once been a non-stop deluge of allegations slowed to a trickle. Advancements in psychology and forensics played a major role in that too. Whenever scientific progress shines new light on the unknown, the devil tends to slink off with the shadows. But as societal norms change and culture evolves, our collective addiction to whitewashing and mythologizing the past remains a congenital, hereditary, and uniquely American thought disease that's plagued us since our founding. As Cohen warned in his book, quote, More moral panics will be generated, and other as yet nameless folk devils will be created. This is not because such developments have an inexorable inner logic, but because our society as presently structured will continue to generate problems for some of its members and then condemn whatever solutions these groups find. In other words, the cycle will continue and these horrors will repeat themselves in perpetuity unless the systemic problems that breed them are fixed, or the system is remade altogether from the ground up. Shortly before his death in 1996, astrophysicist and friend of the pod, Carl Sagan, published his final book, The Demon Haunted World, which included a chapter about the mass hysteria of alien abductions and satanic ritual abuse. Quote, I worry that pseudoscience and superstition will seem year by year more tempting. The siren song of unreason more sonorous and attractive. Where have we heard it before? Whenever our ethnic or national prejudices are aroused, in times of scarcity, during challenges to national self-esteem or nerve, when we agonize about our diminished cosmic place and purpose, or when fanaticism is bubbling up around us, then habits of thought familiar from ages past reach for the controls. The candle flame gutters, its little pool of light trembles, darkness gathers, the demons begin to stir. Quick programming note. So it turns out that our web host doesn't really like our three hour long episodes either, and we have to split it into two if we want to even be able to upload it to their site. So there's going to be a part five to our three part series. The good news is it's already been recorded and we're almost done with the editing. So we're going to release it on Friday, which means this would be a really good time for you to subscribe to us if you haven't already. And that way you'll be notified when the final actually for real we promise conclusion to and he doth appear is released enjoy your memorial day weekend and we'll see you on friday and thanks for listening y'all